yeah, so it's um, two weeks in, yeah, no, so I get to this temple, um, meet this guy who speaks to me in English, say I'm not a Christian, I'm exploring things, go to the top of the temple, see this man who looks like a demon, seems to be schizophrenic, according to Western standards, sat there meditating, I sit next to him, he gets up and leaves, and then I sit exactly where he was sitting, um, and I begin to meditate very deeply and enter into some kind of trance. I'm very like really deep in some kind of trance for about 20 to 30 minutes, right? And I'm like, wow, what's what's going on? And so anyway, I finish, I walk down the temple, go back to the first level and see the, the English, the, this English speaking man come to speak to me again. I was like, I was like, that's a really interesting experience for a beautiful temple. He was like, you felt the Tao? I was like, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, I did. And he's like, well, I've got something for you. And so he goes to the back of the temple and he has these boxes and he gets out a big book, beautiful book about the temple and he gives it to me and I leave. Um, and then I go back to the temple a couple of other times in the, in the subsequent weeks. And then one of the times I go back to the temple, I get to where I meditate, which is just in the very central, the top, the main god, the highest god in the temple, and I sit there in front of it. And I get there, and there's this young man with about four women, like middle-aged women, who are engaged in some kind of um, ritual, screaming, making noises, shouting and stuff, and running around in, in front of the, the, the top gods. And... I just go and sit down exactly where I meditate all the time and just meditate whilst they are moving around, making all of this noise and screaming and stuff. And I'm just deep, focused meditation in the middle. And again, I'm there about 20, 30 minutes feeling in some kind of deep trans meditation. And this, at the end, this man who's with these women, this young man, he goes and takes one of the apples from the offerings table and comes and gives it to me whilst I'm sat on the floor. And I take the apple and I eat it and I leave the temple. Okay, and then, and then this, is, this gets to not last Monday, but the Monday before. And I, I am in some kind of deep flow, I would say, like kind of flow state, like that's what people say in the West, I guess, but like just... I'm just doing, I'm not planning anything, I'm just doing, 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 doing. And this is how I've been approaching my work at this point too. And it's just all, don't plan, then do, do, then plan, just do, right? Very Taoist sort of like, just do, 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 philosophically. Anyway, I end up at this, I end up in some kind of very strange mental state. And I end up at this, at the Tao, the Taoist temple again, going through the, portal entrance into this Taoist temple and see very strange things there after, I mean, I mean, I've driven there on my scooter and I get inside the temple and I park my scooter and I climb through the temple after encountering various strange things and I get to the, the, the top of the temple again and whilst it, when I get to the top of the temple I end up and at this point I've got my backpack with my laptop in it and a guitar lately carrying with me because I'm concerned at this point I'm pretty paranoid I'm thinking like like I'm probably going to have to get the fuck out of the country at some point because I'm really scared of the experiences I've been having right because I've been encountering a lot of very strange stuff and I'm very scared of my life at this point and so I've got my backpack with me my laptop 
and my passport and stuff in there and my guitar later just in case I need to flee the country, right? And so I get to the, temp- the top of the temp- temple again and I end up lying down on one of the offerings tables at the top. And I'm like... And then this woman comes over and she says, you can't lie there. I'm like, okay, okay. She's like, she's like, go. And then she says something to me, or at least I, from what I understand, she says like, go and play. And I'm like, what does that mean? Go and play. And she points to the back of the temple and she says, go. and so at the back of the temple, it's like, it's like seven ledges, concrete ledges, like concrete, 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 concrete. And it's about, they're about, I don't know, two and a half meters high each ledge maybe three meters high. And I climb up onto the first ledge and then I climb up to the next one, pulling my bag and guitar lady up. Climb up, climb up, climb up, climb up. And then I get to the top. I sit there for a minute and I'm looking down at the temple and I'm like, okay, now I'm above the gods, right? Okay, this makes sense now. Okay, and then I look down, look down at it. And then there's this steep concrete bank at the end, which is really hard to climb up. And so I figure out a way to get around and I climb up to the top of the temple and I'm like, okay. But I'm like, this doesn't go far enough. I can't stay here. Like, I've, I've, I've got to go further. And so I climb into the jungle. And the jungle behind this temple is, it's like the steepest jungle I've ever seen. It's like just vertical bank, just straight up. And I begin climbing up through this jungle. And... All, all, all while this is happening, I'm, I've been feeling like I've been the subject of both heavy surveillance and social control of some kind, right? Like, for a long time in my life, I've been feeling like my phone's been controlling me or artificial intelligence has been programming me. And as I climb through the, the jungle, I begin to feel like there's this external force that is physically controlling me because sometimes I'll slip over and I'm like, I didn't do that. It wasn't me. I wasn't in control of my behavior doing that. Like I didn't slip. Somebody's literally making me fall over. Like this is strange. And so I begin to sort of reveal to myself the difference between sort of my will and this other one that's sort of controlling me or something. Right. Anyway, in this slowly, as I move through the jungle and discover various things on the way, I mean, like like bunkers and stuff. You know, like all of this. And there's all of this narrative going on in my head at the time that's very sort of like worried about Chinese invasion of Taiwan and the fact that we're you know if it happens we're going to be in those mountains and we're going to be fighting for our lives in those mountains right and I'm like living out this fantasy almost in the sense of sort of like you know Che Guevara in the fucking jungle or something you know and I'm climbing 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 through the forest anyway eventually I get further and further and further and it's it's very steep and I'm, I'm just keep climbing and at some point I have this realization that every time I look forward and look ahead then it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy and I end up lost or I end up tripping over and so I'm like okay just look down like imagine you're a leopard like you're not you're not looking forward just look down and I look down and I begin to just treat it like that and as I do so the path just unfolds before me like I'm just flowing and I just flow and I don't need to look forward. I could may as well be blind, like, because I'm just flowing through the jungle at this point. And I begin to like, the, the ants begin to just cover me and they don't sting me. They don't do anything. They're just all over my body. And it feels like I'm just like energy at this point, right? Like just like strings or something. And I'm just flowing through the, ju- the jungle. And 
at some point I arrive to and I discover these little spaces like perfect little space to lie down and so I just curl up and take a rest and sleep and I wake up again and I'm like wow fucking jungle what the fuck is going on and then I flow back again find the other spaces and at one point I end up finding myself up I don't know like 20 meters up a tree like I'm and I wake up in this tree and I'm just like hung in this tree like lying in this tree like a fucking leopard I'm like what the fuck I climb down and I carry on and I keep walking walking I'm like I'm gonna get to the top of this jungle I really want to get to the top of this hill like keep going and it's like there's no way but I'm also having these kind of ideas about sort of maybe discovering some kind of lost tribe or something in there and shit I don't know so all kinds of interesting things running through the head at this point because just, <laughs> just alone in the jungle like one with the jungle eventually I'm like okay I've, I've, I've got to stop like I can't go any further like you've gone far enough this is enough and so I turn around and then I begin to flow back down like bloody water through the, the jungle and, but I'm slipping over a lot on the way down because it is just... Anyway, I end up like pretty much just sliding all the way down this jungle. And I get back to the edge of the temple and I'm like, I've got to go all the way back the way I came. So I, I climb around the side, I climb over the wall of the temple, climb back up to the very top where I... Uh, the concrete bit. Climb down, jump down, jump down, jump down. Climb over the wall, get back to the top of the temple and I go to the offerings table and I take the largest red apple off that table and I pick it up and I bite it in front of people who are there and I walk out of the temple. <coughs> the story doesn't end there. I walk out of the temple. And as I walk out of the temple, I mean, I've seen, I've been seeing these demons or something in Puli, right? Or identifying these people who were evil. And as I walk now, after having had this experience, my sense of smell is extremely heightened because I've been in the jungle, right? I can smell evil, it seems, or smell death on people. And so, anyway, I, I, I'm heading back to my apartment, and um, I'm heading back. I know this sort of back way to get to my apartment. I'm like, I'll go the back way. Anyway, as I head through the back way, I pass this house, and it's like this white house, and it's it stinks of death, this building. Like, it smells like rotten corpses. And I am like, what the fuck do they have in there? It smells like rotting human bodies, like, literally. Like, many piled up in there. It's disgusting, whatever they're doing in there. And at that point, I'm like, I can't... I'm scared of this. I'm going to go back and go the way that I came before. And so I turn around. And as I turn around, these two cars drive down. And they stop. And one of them stops, and he winds down the window. And stops next to me and he looks at me and he's like this guy is like the personification of death right and as I've been walking on this journey back when I've seen people that have been dis disturbing me I have been giving them flowers I've just found a flower like uh, off the off the street like off the like you know a pink flower and so I've got this flower in my hand and I give this flower to this personification of death and he eats it and he swallows the flower and he just goes <coughs> and I'm like I just I think I swear at him and then I leave and then I return to my apartment and I'm like what the fuck has just happened and <laughs> then I wake up the next day and I go to my work um, and they're like where were you yesterday I was like 
I don't know. <laughs> I was lost. I was like on a journey in the jungle. Sorry, I didn't make it to work. And they're like, look, we can't have somebody engaging in this kind of behavior working at our school. And I'm like, okay, but I mean, you know that I have done everything for this school. Like, I have worked tirelessly for these kids, and I have totally revolutionized their way of thinking about the world whilst they've been here. And they're like, blah, blah, blah. I end up in this trial of Socrates situation in the school. Literally, I'm like, I walk into the room, I'm like, is this the trial of Socrates? What the fuck is going on? <laughs> because there's this Canadian guy that works in the school who's like a Stalinist. All he did in the school was just paper push, 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 push. It was just relentless, fucking pointless bureaucratic authority and it was just endless and just tirelessly made things more shitty for everyone. <laughs> so I was really pissed off. And I told him, I was like, I was swearing in this meeting. I was just like, fuck you. I mean, like, whatever. I mean, like, look, people take a day off work sometimes mysteriously that fucking happened. You know, you can't just fucking suddenly fire me for this. And they're like, look, we're not going to fire you. You can just resign. I was like, okay, whatever. You know, and then this Canadian guy's like, but we're not, you know, you're going to have to, you know, your, your visa is subject to this job and you're going to have to leave the country and whatever. It's like, no, I'm not. <laughs> None of that's true. <laughs> Basically, it's all bullshit. And anyway, eventually the Canadian guy and the, those other people leave the meeting and I stay behind with the head of the school. And he's like, look, we understand what's happened. Um, you know, we're, we're going to give you all the money that we can and, um, you know, you can do what you want in Thailand. So, yeah. <laughs> so, I, anyway, I, I get my stuff together, I resign. The school gives me a bunch of money. I go back to my apartment. I pack all my shit up because I'm like, I have to get the fuck out of this town because there's fucking some death thing here and there's demons. I don't want to stay here anymore. I just do not want to be in this town anymore. It's fucked with my head too much. And so I pack all my shit that same day and I get on a bus and I get to fucking Taichung and now I'm here. Then you just arrived here. Just... Oh, I've been here. I've been here like a week. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Western University. What do you The name, Juntao International School. Yeah. It has a lot of staff turnover. Mm-hmm. I don't know if other people have had similar experiences in Puli, but I do know... I met a girl there um, who works in a coffee shop, and she... I mean, she's Chinese, or she's Taiwanese, and she... She interestingly revealed to me when I was speaking to her, she was like, oh, I, I, I speak to animals. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. She's an animal whisperer. And I was like, that's interesting because last year when I was in Portugal, I had a conversation with a cat for 20 minutes. She, she was like, oh, okay. That's, and anyway. <laughs> but then she told me, she told me, look, my family's famous because my family can see demons. And I'm like, well, that's really interesting because I saw demons too in Portugal last year. So I'm not alone in this. Like, there are other people that see the same shit that I do. And I know there are. There is some other reality out there that we refuse to admit exists there is this spiritual dimension or whatever it is and people do have access to it and much of the time those people that have access to it end up being dismissed as mad or schizophrenic etc etc and then actually they're accessing this other reality that is is extremely important to our understanding of the universe you know so yeah i mean it's been very very insightful <laughs> at least so you didn't meet her parents no I mean I'm, I'm trying to I'm, I'm, not, I'm not in the town anymore but you know that's why I said to her I was like look I've had 
this encounter with Demons 2, I would really like to speak to them to see if it's the same experience, because I'm sure it is. And what's very interesting is that the experiences that I've had with this, a friend of mine in England who has been, you know, institutionalized multiple times with schizophrenia, etc., etc., has his experiences are exactly the same. What, what would you think? Exactly. Like, what would you think? Like, in other words, what we talk about, the, the experience in terms of the ability to speak to animals or have this deeper communication with animals is a constant feature of what is allegedly the schizophrenic experience or process. So, I mean, the, like, for example, the demon thing, I mean, why would that be always the same type of, uh, of experience? Why different people would have? I, as I mean, I, I mean, I think that I mean, I, I, I know. How we think people, different people, would have different experiences. Yeah, but that, but it's like it's like the same with. It's like the aftertaste. Yeah, but it's like the same with it, it, like this realm. Like there is, despite like, I mean, you know, it's it's important when you think about sort of like Oriental thinking versus Ox, like Western thinking, or you know, if you like English, the way English speakers think because of the linearity of English. The way, the way Spanish speakers think because of the, the sort of divergent thinking involved in, in Spanish in Spanish thinking, basically, and the Oriental tradition of the sort of like spiraling thinking. This has a big impact on... I'm trying to think what my point was now. Because if everybody thinks differently, I mean, yeah, that is very... The point is that it's still... Even, even, if, even if we've got those extreme differences and because oriental thinking does lead to totally different concepts of time and, and planning and behavior and and you, you can see it in sort of the anthropology contemporary anthropology of, of these societies but the point is that there still there still is even though reality is always linguistically constructed in a sense there is it does point to something like i mean as in like we do have a consensus reality of, you know, that's a car outside, it doesn't matter what language, whatever way you think about things, everyone acknowledges that there's a car outside and you can get in and drive it somewhere, right? In other words, what I'm saying is that there is this other dimension that also has this kind of consensual um, property that these that these schizophrenics or these spiritual or these people, they the experience is the same. Like that there is... A, a unity in the experience, just as there is a unity in the experiences of this reality. Uh, no. No, it's I not just endlessly subjective. That's what I'm saying. Say there is a, there is an objectivity to it. Mm. Uh, I think it's questionable. <laughs> but then why why would it be that I come here from you know England essentially, and I'm seeing demons in Puli, and there's there's a Chinese family that sees demons in Puli too, and we're seeing the same demons. Well, you don't know because you didn't talk to them. But I'm <laughs> certain. I'm certain of it. You know? mean the way? No, maybe it's the same, but the way you look at them is different as well. True. Well, yeah. What I was saying is like, like the, yeah. I mean, for uh, example, one of the common demons that I've experienced in my own relationship with this phenomena is Hitler. I've seen Hitler. Like the, the, the reincarnation or the, the incarnation, you could say, of Hitler, or the soul, the spirit of Hitler. I have seen him both in Puli and I saw him in Portugal too. Um, because he seems to have this 
And whether that's just me personally in terms of the sort of fantasy narrative, if you look at it psychoanalytically, like yeah. playing out, but I don't, I don't think so. I do actually think there is something to be said for the, you know, that these incarnations do actually exist, I think. Like, I mean, this, that, I mean, that's where like the Hindus sort of would go with it, right? They, these incarnations do actually exist. That's that. I mean, and and I'm not. I'm I'm always one to sort of like reject objective reality as much as possible because I'm like a fucking post-structuralist. But like, there does seem to be something universal underlying it, which is like really scary. I suppose. I mean, there's some truth to it. The universe always creating itself. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, this is the other way to look at it. This is where it's like, but this is when you get to the point of, and I know Alan Watts talks a lot about this, where it's sort of like, you know, you are universe. Like this whole reality is yours. Like, and and so me, so me having this conversation with you and you reading that book that prompted me to speak to you is me just manifesting my own reality. But then, at that point, we end up that people, people, when they under, when they misunderstand that they think of that as sort of narcissistic ego like like mayhem because it's just like well then like then it's just all yours like everything is yours you know yeah it's yours but at the same time it's not yours because your reality change over I would I would I would say everything subjective will can change over time so you're not yourself. I mean you're always creating something mm. it's what you just told me I guess it's 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 always a creation. So uh, Everything you don't even belong to yourself. No, but it, it, it just gets—I don't know—it just gets very scary when, and I, I and after, particularly when I was in Portugal, I had this experience. It, it, it got so run away and dark that it was like, I, I at one point I was like, like you know the Nietzsche quote, like I stared into the abyss and the abyss stared back. It was like it was totally that where it was just like. It's like post, like when you take post-structuralism to its absolute limit, when it's just endless chains of signification, and like there's just no end. It's just, it's just const- It's just references to. There's only references to other references to other references. There is no substance to anything. It's just endless refer- referential, right? Which is sort of this anti-Platonic sort of position, which is just endless references, and that becomes it. It's wonderful and brilliant when you accept it and so forth but it's it you it's very clear why then you have like paranoid schizophrenia is because this becomes it becomes a very it's very frightening at the same time yeah. i mean just thinking that what's, what's happening now is frightening for people nothing much is happening is it, i don't know I mean, the situation is the pandemic or, yeah of a scandemic, whatever you want to call it. I mean, this is just a situation or world is scaring everybody. So, I mean, obviously, you can tell people that things, you know, don't exist or don't happen or there's multiple reality. I mean, yeah, and it's just, just, just the idea of a vaccine or something just make people crazy. But yeah, I mean, one thing that we can accept, you know, is sort of everyone accepts death. You know, that's, that's something that I kept coming back to. It's like, look, what, we can all accept that there is some kind of termination to this condition that we're in right now, right? Everyone accepts that. I mean, but what, particularly what I think coronavirus has done is sort of 
really made people afraid of death again in a way that was that's been really damaging. But like it, it's this is why like something I was doing with students was just like showing them Coco again, like you know the movie Coco. Because something what's really interesting about Mexican society because I lived in Mexico for five years is Coco is a Mexican movie. Coco's Mexican movie, yeah, and it's, you know, they, they have this, they celebrate death in Mexico, you know, Santa Muerte, Dia de los Muertos, like there, it's very, and you know, here, I mean, it's just like, death is this beautiful skeleton, you know, it's not this ugly, zombie, fearful monster, it is just a beautiful thing, and you go into some other beautiful dimension when you finish, and if we can... If children particularly can re-envision death in those terms, I think it's very helpful for them in terms of approaching the world because there's just so much fear in people and an unadmitted fear in the way that they're approaching life. And people are just scared as fuck of death at this point. And it's really, really sad to see it's in a society globally and it's having such a tragic impact on, on, on all humanity, to be honest. And, and, and you see this beginning to manifest in terms of like Russia's behavior for example I mean Russians are famously like they they are petrified of death and they have a stagnant very cold society very self-hating society and as I think it's Gattari like Deleuze's collaborator who basically says that fascism is a social sickness fascism is the ethic of all hate is self-hate writ large so when you have a population that is hating itself, they will hate others. That is the source, the key basis of fascism. And you see this with the Russians, basically, and how that's been externalized onto another population. And you see it with the British, to be honest. The British are very much, like, they're very much in this pre- or proto-fascist situation. I mean, just as, because there's a lot of self-hatred in that society. I think we're all going toward fascism. That's yes. for sure. But um, I, I won't. I won't look at the Russian worse than, than, than the other. I don't know why. No. Why you? Yeah. Why, why you? Well, I just mean the fact that they're the first to like minute. They they've been well, not the first. I mean, because the United States, I mean, you know, invasion of Iraq, Afghanistan, all of that stuff was terrible. You know, and and, so, and worse than what Russia's done to Ukraine. But at the same time, just the the historical significance of what Russia's done. You know, just because of its its presence in Europe is is, and Putin fully aware of that. Like it's it's the historical significance is just so great. Invading Ukraine. Yeah, invading Ukraine. It's just historically so. Because big. it happened in Europe, but it's like you say, I mean, America is all you know, Europe, and we also went to Somalia, to Yemen, to all those countries. I know. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And when yeah, it happens over there, yeah. you know, everybody's like, it's so fine. Uh-huh. So I'm, I'm really a little bit against. I mean, I don't like. Russian, this what they're doing. I don't think they're doing good, but I don't think they're doing worse. No, <laughs> that's no. what I mean. Yeah, I, just you know, I, don't, I don't look at, at Russian like a boogeyman. <laughs> no, 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 <laughs> it's, no, no, it's no, not no, how no. I look at yeah. them. You know, I think they're no. doing as bad as the other. As yeah, yeah, the no, absolutely. Yeah. And, and the worst thing is like because of TV, because of newspaper, people believe that the Russian are the boogeyman and all Ukraine are, are the white. Oh yeah, you know, yeah, you think this? Yeah, I think it's a bit well it's just propaganda and it's yeah. yeah it's just useful useful you know it's just narratives you know like you know the news is constantly just building this 
movie movie plot basically you know constructing this movie plot oh well you know the Russians are evil you know this guy's saving the the president of Zelensky is saving humanity from the evil Russians you know it's like This is where it's really interesting when you think of like like Taoist philosophy and how it applies to politics and like how or how it even applies to religious practice in general. I mean, so like I've had a lot of conversations with Mormons lately. Like, yeah, that's probably they are in the, the Mormons because well, yeah, yeah, I didn't know why you put the Mormons in the in the story. Uh, yeah, I just my my my. I didn't see the connection with the Mormons. <laughs> the Mormons, Joseph Smith is a very interesting historical character for me. I I think he he was on to something very important. He was he was he he had an experience very similar to my own experience I think, in terms of this awakening to some other dimension or whatever. Anyway, I mean, but what he very cleverly did was, I mean, he was trying to build a new society, right? That's ultimately, and, well, yeah, so, I mean, he, Joseph he, Smith. Joseph Smith, yeah, I mean, so, Joseph Smith is a young man who, who, who has this conversation with the divine and he ends up convincing a lot of people of what he saw, essentially, and um, he builds a religious, you know, a revival of the Christian church based on this insights that he's had. Um, was it from the 50s or 60s? No, this is, this is what year is it? 18, 1800s? Uh, oh, yeah. 1870s, so many stories like that, that's right. I'd have to check. Anyway, I've just... I've, the Mormons are very open to spiritual experiences, and so that's why I had contact with them. Is because if you go there and talk about these kinds of experiences, they aren't going to think you're crazy or lock you up. They will just listen. They're very good listeners. Um, but on the other hand, they're also in the, the, the modern, the, the current incarnation of the the dominant Mormon church. Because there are various sect- sectors, and there's some that are much more close. Joseph Smith's original sort of position because actually if you look at Joseph Smith one of the key things he says is that we are co-eternal or co-equal with God in other words we are God we're not and we aren't Christ like we are Christ just like people talk about Buddha nature we are Buddha like we Buddha isn't another a person outside of us it's us we are gods we just constantly build these systems that make us refuse to acknowledge our inherent divinity. And Joseph Smith seems to me, in his basic words, accept that principle. But you see in the current form of the church that again they pushed Christ up into heaven again and pushed God up into heaven again and said, no, you're some fucking man in the sky. It's like, fuck off. You know? He's down here. He's, he's sat next to us. He's just another fucking human being. You know? um, and anyway, i had a lot of conversations with them because they're quite interesting and they're quite interesting to sort of I wouldn't say I don't I, I, I kind of play around with them a bit I guess I don't know they play around with me a bit I think well, I mean I play around them a bit you know it's like whatever it's all games you know 
<laughs> Fun games. Because, I mean, they try... I think the Mormons, they try and... They try and get in people's heads and... Similar to the Seventh-day Adventists, they are trying to bring about the second coming of Christ. And so when they see people like me who have been experimenting with fasting and doing lots of things that like Christ are Christ-like in behavior, they're like, oh, maybe we can get this guy to become, maybe we can get this guy to become Jesus Christ and be our savior. It's like, fuck off. Leave people alone. Let them have their own spiritual experiences. Don't let them fucking, you know, monopolize it, territorialize it, take it into your bullshit fucking church and, you know, turn it into some sour crap that isn't honest, you know? Um, but anyway, that's another story. <laughs> I, but I, what I was saying was the Mormons are very much on this worldview where it's like, we must fight for the good. We must fight good against evil. Like, the de- or the devil will win. It's like, that is the shittest way of looking at the world. Do not look at the world like this. Like, it's just, it's, it's not black and white like that. It's like, and Taoists understand this, where it's like, look, you can't have good without evil. You can't have evil without good. So what's the point in just fighting all... If, you, if you're fighting for good, all you're doing is provoking evil back at yourself. Like, it's just it's just going it's just, it's to be response, response, response. And so you have to just do stuff. Like, don't try... If you try to do good, then you won't do good. Like, have faith you will do good without trying to do good because you are good. You don't need to try to be good. If you're trying to be good, then it means that you're acknowledging that there is a part of you that isn't good. So stop trying to be good, but you can't stop trying to be good because then you're stopping trying to try or whatever, right? And you know, it's like in Buddhism where it's like this constant trying situation where it's like try to try to try not to try to try. Like it goes on and on and on, but at some point, once you get to the point of sort of habitualization of practice and stuff, you can get to this space where you are no longer trying to do things. You're just doing it. But you're not planning, you're not preparing, you're just doing. You're just flowing. And it's fucking liberating, for sure. It's a lot easier, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's why increasingly I just find myself sort of I think I, I, I think I do. I mean, I really begin to understand why Zen Buddhism was so popular because it's just the combination of Taoism with Buddhism is actually really a, an excellent idea as a system because the Buddhist sort of thing just centers you and gives you that sort of like core subjectivity, and then the Tao is this much more profound sort of philosophical position, and it's not really possible to deal with the Tao in a, an effective way unless you have that Buddha position in the first place, I think, because it gives you this security in your subjectivity that allows you to be a human being whilst encountering this extremely profound principle of the Tao. <laughs> Basically, it's what... When you talk about the Tao, what are you talking about? I mean, you, know, you know Lao Tzu, the Tao Te Ching? That's why I'm asking you yeah, which, yeah. which one, because that people have different ideas about Yeah, the, Dao, the original, you know, like, the Tao Te Ching is an incredible book. Well, it's not even a book, it's just it's a, I think I think that should just be compulsory reading for everybody. It's, it's so short, so important, and so life-changing when you read it, that it's just, I, I don't understand why it's just not just compulsory reading for everybody. Honest. <laughs> Changed my life, I'm sure. But they, they don't read it here, I think. It's not 
Even if you're yeah. away, it's still very far from yeah. yeah. Well, look, people find it very hard to understand. It is. It is yeah. Hard. yeah. But it's actually very simple. It's, 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 this, this is the problem in the West these days, where it's sort of like, I mean, t- take the word ontology, right? Which is, people are like, what the fuck does ontology mean? This is a fucking difficult concept. It's like, no, it's not. Look at the origin of the word ontology. On, on, literally on, what's on me? On or off. Ontology, the origin of that word is on or off. Ontology refers to things being on or off. Is this on or off? Does it exist or does it not exist? That's ontology. That's what we study. That's what you study in ontology. Being right is is it on or off? Any kid can understand that. Like it's it's, it's your phone. Is it on or off? Like that's ontology. We don't need it to be some sort of crazy academic thing that's studied by people in their ivory castles and towers and shit. You know, it's it's practical, easily understood by children. And it needs to. We need to have more encounters with that kind of stuff at early ages. You know, a lot of this experience has come through. I was teaching international baccalaureate, which is like you know the French developed international school program, and they have a course in it's the last two years of high school. I was teaching global politics and history, and then I was teaching um, theory of knowledge. Theory of knowledge is basically, it's like an introduction to epistemology um, for high school. And it's an incredible course. And it's it's doing so much to change education. Like anybody, any teacher that's ever taught TOK, they're like, it changed my life. Like it's just, it's a brilliant subject to teach, like in high school. And it's, it's really interesting as a teacher because you're constantly working with these very demanding intellectual ideas and you're working out how to not simplify them, but make them sort of like palatable or engaging or like comprehensible to younger people. And by doing that, you're engaged with yourself in terms of understanding these ideas all the time, right? In, in a deeper way. And so you end up really developing a very sort of... You end up developing your own theory of knowledge very effectively. And it's very satisfying as teachers to be involved in that. You know? Because... I can't remember who it is that says it, but you know how much about teaching is about. Teachers don't really teach. When, when they're teaching, they are trying to understand themselves. And so the process of teaching is just this process of people trying to understand the world themselves, not really actually teach anything to anybody. They're actually just confused about the world and they're trying to put it together whilst they're teaching it. Well, you're showing, you're showing roads of direction to other people. Yeah. <coughs> <coughs> Smokers cough. <laughs> I started smoking again recently because I was very stressed by all of these experiences, and uh, I stopped smoking for many years. I've now taken up again. <laughs> where are you from? England. Yeah. But I've lived in. I mean, I lived lived in seven countries. <laughs> I mean, I said I spent the last five years in Mexico. I'm a permanent resident of Mexico. I love Mexico. It's a very good It's just, uh, it's got its issues. <laughs> it's corruption and crime, but it's a very, very free country. You can, you can do whatever you want there. 
no psycho, no, no psychiatric establishment to fuck things up. Yeah, that's because anywhere you still have you see structures of control. Yeah, I mean, Mexico, Mexico has psychoanalysis actually. Like that's the structure of control. Like the, the psychoanalysts control Mexico because everyone has a psychoanalyst there. Um, I mean, increasingly, there's a lot of psychiatrists in terms of medicate, medicating people there, and it's very dangerous. Like, I had a student, a student who had just been, he had clearly been abused at some point by somebody, and he was suffering a lot, you know, mentally. And the way that they were treating him was just so damaging. I mean, like, it was just, he was seeing a psychotherapist, he was seeing a, a psychiatrist who was medicating him and stuff, and he was just in such a bad place. And, I mean, a friend of mine in England, and I, I, I tend to agree with him, he just thinks that the whole, I mean, the, the very concept of psychology should be abandoned, in a sense. I mean, I, I, don't have, I, I like studying psychology and looking at it interestingly, but as a, it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's a form of profound social control that's very damaging. Because, I mean, and the, the situation in the UK at the moment is that... Education is even worse. Yes, but it all has to. We have to break down all of it. That's the thing. There's so much to. There's so much to fit, not fix, but to deconstruct. I would say. Um, I'm trying personally. I am trying to deconstruct as much of the system as I can in my life. Like. Uh, and I'm going to give it the best fucking go I can. And, you know, starting with psych psychiatry is one of the big ones, but education too. Um, like, I've just, I've developed this new, this new architecture for education um, that is groundbreaking, I would say. But people won't understand. I mean, I can show you a little bit of it. Um, it's about like breaking down the dichotomization of the mind and body it's about reintegrating mind and body together um, so it's kind of like yoga mixed with it's like yoga correctly understood rather than yoga like like yoga is exercise which is kind of the way it's been misinterpreted in the west as yoga yeah exactly yeah. um well before i show you it's like you but to do that you need to have <coughs> the system has to change completely yeah and we can yeah, this so this is a very simple thing that we change that's going to have very big impact, I think. Um, okay. Uh, well. This is um. This is actually a tattoo I have here, but I, I don't know if you're. Are you familiar with David Graeber? Dave Graeber's an anarchist, 
uh, anthropologist. It's a good start. Yeah, um, he just published. He 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 died or was murdered or socially murdered um, last year. He's from the US. He was big in the. Um, what was it? You know, the, the Occupy Wall Street. He was big during that. Occupy Wall Street. Like he was very influential activist during Occupy Wall Street. Anyway, he's, he wrote a book called A New History of Humanity. Um, it was published, what's it called? Yeah, Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity. He also wrote a book the, the, on the history of debt and a book called Bullshit Jobs. Very, very good. Very, very good book. Oh, I just think about, I think I know someone who can help me to translate. Yeah? Okay. I think so. Just, just put to my mind. That'd be excellent. But he lives in Taipei also. I mean, I can also, we can just call him. Video chat. Do it, yeah. you know, sort of yeah. I think it'd be perfect. Sweet. I just think better than all the others. Awesome. Okay. Um, but anyway, he, the, the book I'm talking about. Um, this guy is, is, is not like you, but he's the same. I was, I was walking in, I don't know, in a secondhand place and just start talking to him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like well, you look like an interesting guy. Yeah. So that's and I saw you reading interesting <laughs> books. Like, trying to have a chat with these guys. <laughs> because partly it's like, not many people have read my work or really listened to what I've had to say, and it's nice to have. But you're teaching, so maybe a lot of people listen to you. No one, <laughs> no one, listens, to, no one listens to me, really. I mean, you know, like, or no one spent time to really read my work, or no one gives me any feedback on it, really. And it's like, I don't, I, I, I need to have some kind of understanding of how other people are responding okay. to this information and to these ideas, because otherwise I'm just like, it doesn't help my paranoia when people are just like dead silent women. <laughs> For fuck's sake, like, are you okay? Like, is this okay? Like, um, is this dangerous or should I be worried about this? Like, what should I be doing? Like, I don't know. Like, this is just, I don't really have a filter. I don't give a fuck, you know? Um, so anyway. <coughs> but anyway, the, the point I was talking about here is New History of Humanity, David Graeber. He, he's talked, the book's all about um, how Basically, all our all our anthropology is wrong. Like this whole idea of linearity in history, of primitive communism to like now is just all bullshit. It's all made up nonsense. That like Rousseau just basically made up. Basically, um, kind of. The point being that uh, the Renaissance in Europe happened not because of some sort of like revelation in European thinking, but because of their contact with indigenous communities. And so it was the indigenous influence on Western civilization, civilization, civil, not civil, um, civilization that gave rise to the very question of inequality. So he took, because it's all about, kind of about inequality, like every fucking book ever is, kind of in political theory, is about inequality in some sense. He, he says that this very question of inequality wasn't even, wasn't a question in Western civilization until um, the encountering with the indigenous, essentially, in, at least at this point in the Renaissance, right? Like, in other words, inequality was so deeply ingrained in, in European civilization, society, that it just it just didn't even consider it as an issue. It was like, people would be homeless and just disgustingly treated by society, and it just wasn't even brought up as an issue. And it wasn't until the indigenous communities, particularly the Native Americans, were like, 
what the fuck are you doing in your countries? You are disgusting, evil people. Like, and then they begin, and the missionaries and stuff seem have these reflections and are like, oh Jesus Christ, we are fucking horrible. Like, you know, <laughs> don't let them know that we know that they know that we're horrible. Blah blah. blah. Anyway, and that all of this influence then has a big influence on France and and uh, you know Rousseau and then French Revolution, etc., etc. All of that stems from in, impact of in, indigenous communities. Basically, is is the thesis in this book basically? But his fundamental point is that if you look at society anthropologically speaking, it is anarchistic in the sense that if you look at indigenous communities, they don't operate around principles of planning. So there's no planning then doing, there's just doing. And because of this, there is these societies are subject to constant socio-political change, such that they will shift based on seasons, they will shift day to day. In some cases, it might be one week is controlled by women, the next week is controlled by men. One, in the summer, it might be authoritarian, the winter yeah, might be the, democratic. But they still have a structure like that. They still have a structure, I would say. I mean, His I argument is already there isn't, there isn't one. In, and you have the Eskimo, Eskimo in the Eskimo. Eskimo, yeah. Eskimo is what you just said, like North, South, I mean, during summer, during winter, yeah, yeah, yeah. women, men, but they have a structure. Yeah, they're still, they're still, still the structures at a much higher meta level than our structure, yeah, for example, exactly, like where we've like nailed it down into... I would think there's still a structure to it, I don't think they, it's completely chaotic, like mm. the way you... Just well, I guess it's, it's, not, it's not chaotic, though. I mean, as in... What I mean, chaotic is in, in a good sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, no, what I'm saying is that like, these, the structures that develop just arise naturally, in a sense. Like, as in, they aren't consciously planned and controlled. They just emerge from... Yeah, because these, of the nature of... From the, the social the interactions. Yeah, the exactly. Rather than being this yeah. sort of, like, conscious political project or something involved, they just emerge. Mm -hmm. And so it's, like, much more... It just leads to much more fascinating civilizations when that happens because otherwise you're just trapped in this sort of like linearized thinking and like fixing things down into boxes of control and it's just you know that, that's the way that our authoritarian systems function. I yeah, I will argue that there's, there's still there's still linear thinking in, in what you just present me because it's it's not because like the nature of the environment is just a certain way that it will. Uh, uh, there's more choices, I would say there's more. The structure is bigger, but there's still, there's still a big structure in the way they think, I, I will say. I mean, even for, for Chinese, I mean, uh, I, I don't really see the Taoism thinking in most of the Taiwanese, or even less, obviously, in China. <laughs> because of, yeah, yeah, because yeah, of yeah. what happened, I don't know, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not something great. No, but there is something, I, mean, I think there is something in the Oriental thinking, perhaps. But I mean, this has also been. But I don't think you've also, you, you've also got to that this, this is shift, shifted and shaped by the globalization of capitalism. So that's why I won't. Uh, I don't know. If Which, oh, capital, capitalism relies on linearity and like progress. Yeah. You know, this we're going somewhere. We're go, you know, whereas Oriental thinking but doesn't. So, so Socrates. I mean, the Greek were like this. I mean, the, the philosophy start with this. This is like you said. This is well, yeah, actually what's the origin? This is my, my, where well, are we looking at Plato. Like Plato. Yeah. You know, Plato yeah. killed Plato. Plato killed Socrates. Yeah. That's what I say these days. But when you were look, well, what I want to say, when you were climbing and looking forward, that was the idea. That was your, and when you start not looking forward, just doing <laughs> exactly. it, that was different. This 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 is very interesting when you get into the history of. European philosophy because it's it's really with Plato that this happens because he's the one Plato remember is the one that says we need to write things down 
we need to make books. Socrates like, no, we don't. And Homer, obviously, famously, Homer was just a, a street poet. You know, don't write things down. Writing things down is fucking dangerous. Very, very dangerous. And Plato knew this full well, and he was an evil motherfucker that killed Socrates because of that. Socrates knew full well that it was too dangerous to turn these things into writing, that writing would be, would plague humanity. And it has. It's destroyed, you know, and because it's led to this fixation of the ideas and so forth. But also, you know, like, I mean, I think it's Derrida that says about how much potential there is in, in, in writing too, because there's so much loss in writing, which means there's so much space for constructing meaning in writing, because there's so much loss in the communication of ideas through writing. Whereas in speech, there's kind of like less loss because you're more able to actually sort of get feedback and actually communicate with somebody in a, when you're speaking to them than you are when you're writing. So there's more, like the audience has much more participation in writing than they do in speaking. Right? It depends how you teach or yeah. how you speak. Anyway, it's interesting. Because in speech, is just, to me, a speech is just like you know, writing. It's the same. Yeah. It's when you have a conversation or when you're teaching and you have a, a Conversation or something going on with your student, that we have something we have to show I mean, it's like once you have Plato, it's sort of like you must read this before you can do this, rather than do this, then read this. You know, it, it, it leads to this situation of putting like the plan before doing, the doing before, you know what I mean? Like, once you have that things written down, then everything becomes like you must make reference to that before you can do this and it's like oh fuck off like no I'm a human being I know how to live leave me alone I will do it and then I will work it out as I go along and if I need to make reference to some text along the way maybe I'll do that but then it's then it's much it's more job for the teacher I mean for the teacher or the, the person in the relation with so, uh, that's what I mean I mean like when I came to Taiwan I was really shocked by the way they teach they teach students here I mean I'm not saying that in French, it's, it's fantastic, but it's... No, same, yeah. I mean, that's when I got to this school, I was like, these kids cannot yeah, communicate. They just opened the book and just... They can't communicate, the kids, the kids couldn't, couldn't say a word. But my, my concern with that is that it's probably not intentional and, you know, people... Just bear, bear with me, like, it's not... It's probably not intentional and people often think some of the stuff I say particularly they, they, they project intentionality into it I always say it's just inevitable within the social structures and systems that exist this is inevitable and in the Taiwanese context it seems inevitable that the educational system has sort of been suspended almost in a sort of like 1960s type or even earlier kind of industrial education you know highly criticized by the likes of Pink Floyd, for example, <laughs> that, you know, you, we don't need no education. It's like, like this, another brick in the wall. Actually, I brought that up with a student. I was like, we were doing, I, I gave, I had a debate with students and it was, this house believes that classes should be optional for students. I had students debate that, right? And I showed them a short video about this school in England called Summerhill, which is a, a democratic school and students, it's a boarding school, but students don't have to go to class. They can just roam around and do what they want. It's an anarchist school. And um, I had these students do this debate and they all were like, we don't want to choose, we, we want classes to 
we, we, we don't want to choose whoever we go to class or not. We want to be told what to do all the time. That was the universal opinion. I was like, what? Like, I've never heard of, how are you guys so, like, obedient? What the And I say, and I, I, and I just bring up, I'm like, so you just want to be another brick in the wall? And they're like, yes. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> like, it's, I don't, um, is it wrong of me to think that there's something wrong with you if you say that? Because this, this seems very much like learned helplessness to me. And it's dangerous the way you're thinking about things, particularly in a democracy. And so that's when I begin to sort of really disrupt things in the school and try to push very, very hard to break these children's thinking on these issues. Um, and it leads to all these kinds of revelations about the way to approach education. But um, yeah, I mean, but what I was saying about the inevitability or intentionality, I don't know, but it seems to me that they have deliberately or inevitably maintained this educational system to avoid threatening China. Or to avoid, to avoid, like, in other words, you have a population here that largely does not use its democratic rights of free speech because they don't have anything to say. Because they have educated to the point that they don't have anything meaningful to say. And so the system has led them down that road where they very much successfully become victims of social control. Of, of, obviously, of, yeah. obviously, it's a lot easier to, to control people who don't have much choice. That's an idea than, than it is. Yeah. So, yeah. so the education system here has just been sort of undeveloped as a way of sort of appeasing China, in a sense. I don't like this because I think <coughs> just for the, the country itself was that easy. I mean, when it started with, with the Kuomintang, with, uh, with Chiang Kai-shek, I mean, obviously that was more like the dictature than anything. Yeah, I mean, it's also just the legacy of dictatorship, I suppose, yeah. Yeah, so, so remember that like, when she was a child, I mean, they couldn't speak Taiwanese at school. That was mm. just, uh, you got vanished if you did this. Yeah, so, definitely. It's getting better, but the, the way they teach is still, it's still terrible. Oh, it's, to me. Just, so it's just following the books. I mean, even if the system, I think, even the system in Europe is not is not very good. But at least you have different teachers who have different ideas and they teach differently. Mm. So obviously, they're still in a system which is not perfect. No, no. But it's, you you can run you can run into some nice people. I mean, the, the problem. I mean, things. the problem is in, in so. In, in England, I mean, teachers are just so they're, they're deliberately overworked, so it makes it impossible for them to actually meaningfully educate the children. So the, the teachers end up being so overworked that all the teacher really wants is a book just to fucking throw the kids and get them to go through that because they don't have the time or space to actually dedicate themselves to doing meaningful education because they're just mainly because it's just paperwork. They are just the system is Stalinistic and it's just do all this fucking paperwork, all this bureaucracy. Okay, and that's the way that the, that the education systems control all of That's why I was so fucking offended and annoyed about this fucking Stalinist bureaucrat in the school because I was like, this, you are the source of the fucking problem in education. You know? he, he, Cut out the he, fucking he, bullshit. He, he and the, the bullshit the jobs, you know. He, he followed the past. He yeah. followed the past that people met from. Yeah. <laughs> and the school is doing, is doing the same. Yeah. But then we, and we think that even though your student told you they don't want that, they don't want... I mean, they don't want what you offer them. 
Okay. Yeah, they, they didn't, right? Okay, so I, I, I presented this Summerhill idea and whatever, and one of the kids, one of the kids who I said, do you want to be another brick in the wall? He said, yes. A week later or so, he comes to the school and he's like, my mum really wants me to go to a school like Summerhill. And I'm like, oh, I thought, I thought they might, you know, because actually there's a lot of very progressive parents out there these days. And what the education system fails to realise, I mean, like, I'm, I'm teaching on Instagram now, so I've... The, the business is building up but I teach on Instagram like, that is my platform for teaching so the video chat is amazing I can do a lot of really cool stuff on video chat on Instagram and so I'm mainly teaching adults at the moment but um, what was I going to say you like me you forget what you want. Uh, I haven't had this long conversation for a while <laughs> but you wanted to show oh, yeah, that's so what I got distracted from that I, shit. I, I don't know how this, this can be done. Yeah, so this I'm, is. I'm uh, always interested by something functional. Yeah, this is very functional. Anyway, about things, it's always anyway this is like this is kind of like the anthropology of that David Gray book. Yeah. That's why it's there. But I mean, actually, this anthrop- this is the anthropology of in Anti Oedipus, Deleuze. There's a, a huge section of that book which is all anthropology, and it's extremely hard. That, I mean, Anti-Oedipus is the most difficult book I've ever read. Which book? Anti-Oedipus. Anti-Oedipus. Yeah, it is so fucking hard. It took, it took me like two years to read that book, and it was just brutal. But eventually got to the end, and I was like, it, it, it totally changed my life. I mean, the book, the book is schizophrenic. It's like, it fucks with your head, but very cleverly. But anyway, his anthropology is like this, because this actually, this is the oldest, oh, this is the old, this is from the oldest cave painting that exists. Okay. Right here, look. And this is this this actually I did with a cactus spine, a spina de maguey. So this was tattooed with that. But anyway, this this is a design that I made. Um, this is like breaking free from binary or breaking free from identity, I suppose. Um, like because the thing, is, like Deleuze, for example, like differential ontology, which is I which is kind of Taoist too. I very much support differential ontology. But then this is taken actually from Anti-Oedipus, which is, this is a Dogon egg from a Mali tribe. From, and uh, it's like lines of flight. Like if we can replace subjectivity, these concepts of subjectivity with this, then we have something interesting going on because it's just this endless dynamic possibility, right? Um, anyway, this is architecture. I don't. I keep changing the fucking name, but I've licensed it. I always do this Creative Commons licensing. So it's like, if someone uses this, there's no copyright or such. They just have to attribute it to yeah. me. That's it. That's the anarchist idea. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's just, just tell, say where it came if from. If you start saying there's copyright, to be honest, actually, I want to change this to. I need to change that to my pen name because I don't like using my real name. <laughs> this is it so this is so every every education system basically has like and these this could be changed but I mean I this was kind of a compromise within the existing system what I did here such that it it's practical and 
it does everything that the system wants you to do, but at the same time totally challenges the system. So every curriculum, whether it's International Baccalaureate, Cambridge, or local schools, they have concepts that they want students to sort of understand and skills that they want students to develop, right? So in the IB and in Cambridge courses, essentially these are the four concepts that they want students to work with in all subjects, all academic areas, right? Communication, conflict, change, and community. And then the skills, they want students to be able to analyze, investigate, collaborate, and take risks. That's, this is a simplification of these other curriculums, because many of the others, they have like 10 different skills or eight different concepts and stuff. I just like, was like, I'm gonna narrow it all the fuck down, get it down to four of everything. Um, so this is designed for integrated humanities curriculum. But what we do is, actually well, just go back to this. This is, this is the classroom re-envisioned as a architecture, right? So the classroom has a x-axis, a y-axis, and a z-axis. And we can add dimensions to these axes in which the students then utilize the physical space of the classroom and their physical body position in order to explore perspective. So... This is how it's designed for integrated humanities. So on the, the y-axis, we have levels of analysis. And so in the course that I was teaching called Global Perspectives, there are four levels of analysis that the students have to cover. The personal, the local, the national, and the global. And so physically, I was having students change their vertical position in the classroom in order to explore these levels of analysis. So students would be lying down. So we might be looking at this, lying down. This image of death lying down. How, when we're lying down, how do we perceive what thoughts are running through our head from a lying position, right? Um, and it's very interesting. I didn't impose this on students. So it's, stuck. it's better to draw it out of students. You just say, lie down, and we're going to look at this. Okay, how do you, what do you see when we're lying down? Okay, let's sit up in a Buddha position. How do you see this now? Okay, let's kneel. How do you see this now? Let's stand. How do you see this now? And you just see what students, how their thoughts are and see what, because it's not the same for everybody. Some people when they're lying down might feel very vulnerable or um, scared or other people might be, feel very comfortable lying down. You know, like, I mean, you know, if, you, if you've been the victim of abuse, perhaps lying down isn't a comfortable position, but for others it is, you know, or standing might be uncomfortable for people because maybe they have some physical disability even. Know, whatever and so it's different but as a simplification I I imposed this on this on the on this on the situation so that um, we were actually doing the curriculum at the same time whilst utilizing this body movement right um, so so those are the different levels so for example if we were looking at maybe we're looking at I don't know human rights you know students might be lying down talking about human rights from a personal perspective they might be sat in a circle with as Buddhas talking about human rights at the local level, like in the, the city or the town or whatever. And then the national level, I had them sit on chairs, but you can also just do it like kneeling or whatever. Um, and then we talk about, you know, how are human rights important to Taiwan or whatever. And then they stand on their chairs and then we look at it at a global level, like how are human rights important to global level, right? Then... Why did you... I don't know, thank you. 
why do you separate like the the personal, the global, the national, just by like, it's just your own creation? To get yeah, this is this is uh, this is my own creation. Yeah, it's just a way. This is my own creation. Yeah, like the physical body movement stuff. I, it's just my own idea about it. Like it, it just came to my head, and I was like, right, I've got to try this. It's going to be cool. Um, and then the X axis is the political spectrum. So. As I said, this is this is designed for integrated humanities, right? Um, you'll see in a minute how that works. So, political spectrum, we have like the left, the center, and the right, right? So, I simplify this, and it's just like the left is radical, the right is reactionary, and the center is conservative. And so, that's the simplification for students, and they're like, okay. And so, you get obviously students, you give them a bit of a background in terms of what we mean by a political spectrum, but then you begin to combine these dimensions. So students might be, for example, on the far left and looking at things from a global perspective. Okay, so they're talking about sort of the nature of global capitalism and its incompatibility with human rights or something, right? And so they're physically in the left-hand corner of the room stood on, their, stood on a chair looking at the issue, right? Then, oh, I need to like hyperlink this. Um, that actually makes sense, yeah. Um, then on this z-axis, we have the degree of authority. So you've probably seen it before. You know how they, they have those two-dimensional political spectrums, where it's like, like yeah, yeah. And so it's basically that applied into a classroom. And so degree of authority, basically, the closer you are to the teacher, the more authoritarian. The further away you are from the teacher, the more libertarian, right? Anarchist. And so then again, you might have a student position themselves perhaps in the far back left-hand corner, sort of a left anarchist position. Uh, maybe they're talking about it at a local. That's they're cross-legged looking at local politics, and they're talking about like the importance of um, I don't know community relations in terms of or like community community healthcare or something. I don't know. You know, you know what I'm saying? So they might they're they're being in other words, the students begin to combine the three into a dynamic form of analysis that's constantly moving and shifting around the classroom. It doesn't stop there. <laughs> this, this is the next dimension. Like, so within, this is the fourth dimension. So this is three dimensions, right? So that's the three dimensions. Now this is the fourth dimension. Fourth dimension, and this is, I am going to develop this into a metaverse education, I think. So in other words, like, you know, when these kids are living in the fucking virtual world, we will have something like this in there because there's so much crazy shit that you could do. I just, I need money and I need people to help me to build this. So I need to invest it at some point. But um, the social category, I have four pairs of different glasses. I have a pair of reading glasses, which have like plus two diopters. I have these gender glasses, which are like hearts. These ones, which are like nigger glasses, whatever. <laughs> like, not nigger is not offensive here. It's just simply for a joke. Um, and class, which like, you know, like sort of a dickhead, rich cyclist guy that wears these kinds of glasses. Um, the point is that I mean, this lots of people when I've suggested this, they think this is controversial, but it's not. The idea is that you're not putting on the identity; you're putting on the lenses as a way of exploring social categories as a perspective and so you put on these age glasses 
and then you consider the issues that we're looking at through the lens of age. So, for example, you know, again, if a student's perhaps positioned themselves, maybe they're standing on their chair looking at things from a global level on a like left-wing position, anti-authoritarian, and they put these glasses on and they're looking at sort of how age is important to the the issue of human rights, for example. And they might talk about how look old people persecute the young systematically. And it's throughout human history, in a sense, that's been the, the problem, is that it's not about class, it's about age, and it's about the persecution of the elderly against the young, um, and about the young trying to break free from that and, you know, have that revolutionary spirit and break free from the chains of slavery that have bound, been bound upon them by, by the future, by, by, by the elderly. Um, and so maybe that's something. You know, or, or they might put on the, the gender glasses and they're looking at human rights again. Maybe they're in a left-wing position, global level, and they're looking at, like, well, how do women see this? Like, how, how does this play out for women? Or like, how does war play out for women if we've got the glasses on? Well, you know, many people say that if we had more female politicians, we'd probably be more peaceful, blah, 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 you know, that sort of thing. And so it gives an opportunity for exploring those different dynamics in a very practical way rather than, like, being like, I must study feminist theory and all this shit. It's just like, just put on the glasses. How would a woman look at this? How does a man look at this? How do LGBT look at this? How do, like, you know, it's, it's not like when you put on these glasses, you're meant to become a woman and look at it like, you, no, you put them on and you explore the issue of gender in relation to these issues. And then the same with ethnicity, like you put them on and you're like, okay, well, how do black, how do black people see this? How do white people see this? How, uh, uh, how do, if we take a step back and just discard this whole concept of ethnicity, do we have a better ish, better way of looking at things? You know, I mean, part of the whole project here is to deconstruct identity from the ground up so that it's just like kids never arrive at this fixed fixation on identity and are able to prioritize difference over identity. And so that it's sort of differential ontology becomes like the, the, the presupposition of the system. Um, and then class, obviously, you know, exploring rich, poor, etc. You know, and sort of Marxist position essentially all the time, right? Um, then this is the fifth dimension. So there, this is integrated humanities curriculum. So there's four four different subjects that I chose out because it, basically you could I could have done politics or other things like that, uh, but politics is embedded already in yeah. It's all political, as you can see. So this is all. And, and sociology is this is this is sociology essentially, this is politics, um, yeah. And so it's already embedded the political stuff, and sociology is already embedded. And so the subjects that we do study is history, and history we do in the physical classroom because it's just you know history is just books. It's just fucking you know. Anyway, psychology in 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 in, in the school they had a chill room. Uh, and they had couches in there, and so we would be looking at like human rights. Um, like we'd go to the psychology room to look at human rights from, or we're looking at maybe we're looking at death, and we go there and we look at the psychology of death, or we could look at the history of death. We go and look at the psychology of death in the psychology classroom, and again within the psychology classroom, students can still be using these different lenses, putting themselves in these different political positions, sociological positions in relation to the issue of the psychology of death. So like, how does a left-wing position sort of hold up in relation to, or an anti-authoritarian hold up in relation to psychology and looking at death from, you know what I mean? Yeah, so you're, you, just, you change your lens and exactly, in different yeah, positions. Just constantly changing lenses and positions. And then geography we do outside in nature, 
and then economics on the running track it's just a race to the top (laughs) and so yeah I mean that's it that's the the model five dimensions of of education it's pretty exciting I think what are your thoughts you can have a lot lot to do that's a lot to do I know I've got so many things I'm working on now it's crazy like how can you find people to help you I've got it's hard to be honest because people don't want to change I've, I, I've reached out to a few people now like there are there are quite a lot of progressive teachers out there that, and there is I've reached out there's a guy that runs a theory of knowledge website who's very who probably is going to be pretty interested I think and I also reached out I almost almost applied to work at a private school in England and the teacher there the head teacher of politics he has an Instagram page called philosophy minis and it's really good like I mean it's let me show you it's but lots of people dismiss Instagram but they don't understand it but these days it's, it's a really big artistic community building on, on Instagram if you get cut all the crap out like you get a lot of fantastic content on there uh, so this is this is his Instagram and he just does these he just does these similar graphics and then he just you just read the Instagram post and it's just like the whole the whole philosophy of Herschel's phenomenology of time just in a very short summary and it's I'm not sure what his name is but on, on Instagram yeah it's philosophy minis there is a book available I haven't got a copy of it but I mean it's basically just this it's just this in a physical form but it's very beautiful work too like he's very good job. Oh, there's also I'll show you another. There's another really good page. This this guy is doing some very very interesting artwork on Instagram. Recycle. Great name. Philosophy, philosophy minis, right? Philosophy minis, yeah. Also, my I'm on Instagram. You can find me. It's, yeah. it's unchanged to change. <laughs> I've been doing crazy shit like writing poetry in clubs. <laughs> <laughs> And doing meditative spiritual practice in clubs. I lost this ball last night, though. It's a hacky sack. Mm. I've lost it. Disappeared. It's very hard in the street. No, I I I wanted to buy one, actually. Brought it in Mexico. I'm not sure where to buy one here. Maybe online. Yeah, they're really fun. And it's really good stress relief. and just keeps you focused, and it's really, really useful. Yeah, we use it. She, she, she used both before, but she was like, this like, one was so nice to hold too. Like, I'm really pissed off. I've lost it. I, I, to be fair, this guy's this guy's trying to help me. He already contacted the police station and stuff. He's trying to help me find it, but mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, give me a second. 